Okay, today is January the seventeenth, uh, two thousand twelve. I've got a note on my calendar here. You know that we have "Oh Happy Day" in our hymnals. Y'all don't remember Old Happy Day? Y'all be up to singing that sometime? Okay. I remember that. I don't know if we can sing it the way I can remember it. I don't know if this crowd can get cranked up. That's not neither good or bad. It's just there. Yeah, that was a great movie, Secretariat. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, doctrine of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to be here, to focus our attention upon your mighty word. We desperately need it circulating in our stream of consciousness, for we can be challenged every single day, and we need to be ready. So we pray that you will help us to focus, take the things that we learn, and put it into long-term memory, for we pray it in Christ's name, amen. We are in Getting the Gospel Right. We are in the particular portion of it that has to do with faith alone. There's a lot to be said about that because that is probably the fundamental bedrock foundation that evangelical Christianity is based on. That's faith alone in Christ alone with regards to salvation. I was thinking on the way here about... (coughs) I've said several times that knowing something and being able to articulate something are two different things. It kind of is related to the uh, what I've heard lawyers say before. I, have, I saw it on TV anyway. I guess that counts. They say it's not what you know that really matters. It's what you know and can prove that matters. And that's the same thing in the... Spiritual realm. I know that a lot of you have a a tremendous amount of doctrine. Some have more, some have less. But there are basic principles, basic things that you have incorporated into your soul that you have accepted and they are part of who you are. And that's good. That's what we want to have. That's the first stage of it anyway. But knowing it and being able to Give it to others. To stand your ground when you're challenged. When people are saying that what you believe just ain't so. That's when you are really uh, tested to see if you can stand firm for the faith. The Bible tells us that we are to be ready at any time to tell anyone about the hope that is within us. Sometimes uh, theologians call this apologetics. It means to being able to defend what you know. It's one thing to be able to tell someone what you know, but it's another thing to do it in an educated, knowledgeable way. And that's one thing that we're doing here. We're We're not only looking at what is true and what is right, but we are looking at how these truths of the Bible are being challenged and attacked and how we can best defend the faith, the Word of God. That's why it's so imperative that the more people that uh, hear this teaching, the better, because so many people think, well, I understand that I've got it down and that's all that's necessary. No, there's a lot more than that that's necessary. Because when you come into contact with people who are going to add works to faith in order to be saved, which is the 
great majority of people, you know that you are in a very small minority that stand firm on faith alone in Christ alone for eternal salvation. And so what we're doing is looking at where they're coming from and where their weaknesses are. And they surely have weaknesses because they don't have the truth. They have bought the lies. And so when you know how to point out those weaknesses, not through getting on your soapbox and preaching to somebody, but by asking them questions, they have to think. I think that's more powerful than anything else is when someone has adopted a philosophy they have inculcated some truth, at least they think it's a truth, and then someone comes along and asks them a question, and it shakes them to their very core because it challenges them to, to really look deep to see if that is what the truth really is. It's happened to me a few times where I thought that I was grounded in the truth, I was ready to face anyone, and then someone comes along and points out a verse or asks a question, and I can stand up and <clears throat> be bold and act like it didn't faze me at all. I, I, I've always believed this other thing. I don't have to accept that. But then it's the Holy Spirit that comes into us and convicts us. Say, hey, wait a minute. You better look at this. You better make sure that what you believe is so. Because what we believe will essentially determine everything. It will determine where we will spend eternity whether it will be eternity in the lake of fire, whether it's going to be in heaven with Christ. This is just a prelude to tell you that what we're looking at is ways that we can impart God's truth to those who have believed Satan's lies. And it has, they have to be exposed. And we've been looking at one of the weaknesses of those who allege that you have to have works, you have to persevere, if you are going to eventually wind up in heaven. And we know that that is not true because works has nothing whatsoever to do with eternal salvation. What people get mixed up on is that after salvation, works has everything to do with us, but nothing before. And so when someone would allege that, uh, <coughs> some, you know, the, uh, I brought out the Reformed theology who says, well, if you're truly saved, then you're going to persevere. It's one of their tenets. It's one of their basic foundational tenets that if you are truly saved, and I hope I never hear y'all saying truly saved. You're either saved or you're not. There's no truly to it. You either believed in Christ or you didn't. But they say if you're truly saved, then you're going to persevere in good works. And when someone would allege that, or the other, the other tact is similar to that. If you're saved, well, that's good. You believed in Christ and you're saved. However, if you don't stay the course, if you don't walk the straight and narrow, if you fall off into carnality, if you get into too much sin, you lose your salvation. Just don't tell somebody no and start arguing with them. You know what comes to my mind every time something like that comes up, and I hope it will eventually come into yours? Where did you get that idea? Isn't that a good question? It's not threatening. You're not contradicting them. You just want to know. Certainly not why you see things. Where did you get your information from? And I've said this a dozen times already, I'm sure. That is enough to undo most people because most people are so thin in what they believe, there's no depth to it. They never thought it through. They heard somebody say it, sounded good, I think I'll, I'll sign on to that one. Or else they just make things up out of the clear blue. So you want to find out where did that come from? And sometimes they will say, oh, well, it's in the Bible somewhere. You ever heard somebody say that? You could say, well, you know, dogs used to have eight legs. You know, it's in the Bible somewhere. The weakness is that if they allege that you have to persevere in good works in order to remain saved or to prove you really were saved, it's, it's a disaster. First of all, do you know that you're going to persevere 
in good works for the rest of your life? Do you know that? Can you guarantee that? No. You could lie, but that's what it would be if you said, I know I am. No one knows that they're going to persevere in good work. And the people that you talk to usually will run, understand, well, no, persevering doesn't mean that, you, that you're going to persevere in good works all the time. Oh, now here's, there's the Achilles heel. There's the weak link. You understand that? And you want to take that and you want to, to expose it. Oh, it's, persevering isn't really persevering. Just some of the time. And they will have to essentially admit yes some of the time because they're not perfect. So if they're just going to persevere some of the time to prove that they're saved or to maintain their salvation, wouldn't you like to know, well, how much time do I have to persevere? How long? Is it a percentage or is it, is it hours or days or months or years? How far can I go before I'm not persevering? Can you tell me that? Can anybody tell you that? No. Certainly the Bible doesn't say that. What these people have done is set up a false standard in their own mind. And it just comes from I don't know where. But they think if you are truly saved, then you're going to go to church, you're going to read your Bible, you're not going to get angry, you're not going to curse, you're going to be loving and thoughtful, considerate, and on and on and on. Well, that's not describing humans, is it? So when you get off course, I want to know how, when I get off course, and you all get off course, how long can I stay off course before I've lost my salvation? How many good works do I have to do in order to get back on track to where now I'm going to be saved again or I'm not going to lose my salvation? How many times can I do that? If I do that too many times, am I out? Am I going to hell then? You can search the Scriptures from front to back and you won't find any answers to those questions because they're all ridiculous. Because they have nothing to do with eternal life. Eternal life is given by the life giver, Jesus Christ, is given only as a gift and only to those who trust Christ for it. That's it. So, I'm going to put on the board a few things that we went over last time to show you. What happens is, these people analyze your behavior to determine if you're truly saved. Are you really elected? Did God choose you to be saved? Well, if He did, then you're going to persevere. It's my job to check it out. If you're not persevering, I need to let you know. Y'all laugh. This goes on all the time. You never had anybody come up to you that had been analyzing you and saying, uh, Brother, you know, I'm pretty concerned. Well, what about? Well, you've really been slipping lately. Well, that's true. So what? Well, are you sure you were truly saved? That's how the conversation goes. And I'm so glad to tell you, I, well, I could say, I'm, I'm just going to say it because this is what I've said in the past, just to shock a legalistic prude. I said, you're damn right I know. Then it's all, it's a, don't do that, by the way. <laughs> I shouldn't even have said it. Let me put this up here. Because we're supposed to do everything in love. Okay. <laughs> here's, the, here's the mistakes they make. When someone is going to analyze your behavior to see if you're truly saved or not, here's the mistakes they make. Number one, the only standard that God sets for one to become a Christian is faith alone and Christ alone, period, over and out. That's it. That's Nothing else, period. Number two, any other standard would require works, and works would, need, would remove the need for grace. If you can work yourself to heaven, then what do you need Christ for? Why do you go to the cross if you have to have works? I don't think I have this on the list, but here's another good question anyway. If I can't be good enough to save myself with works before I believed in Christ, how can I do it after I believed in Christ? It's still me. Number three, believers continue to sin after salvation sometimes uh, cannot be distinguished from unbelievers. You all know that, don't you? <clears throat> Aren't you glad you don't have to go around with a clipboard? 
and go warn people, well, brother, I don't want to have to do this, but I think you're headed for hell. Yeah, but I believed in Christ. Yeah, but are, did you truly believe? Did you have a head belief or a heart belief? <laughs> I've got a theologian in the notes that I go get to tonight that actually says that. Uh, number five. Four, number skip four. Some unbelievers have exemplary behavior and some believers have disgusting behavior. And don't point fingers because we all have disgusting behavior sometimes, don't we? Hmm? Number five. They don't take into consideration how believers vacillate between spirituality and carnality. See, this is a fundamental flaw in fundamental Christianity. They don't know squat about spirituality. They, if you talk to a fundamental Christian about grieving the Holy Spirit or quenching the Holy Spirit, it does not compute. Never even heard terms before. What are you talking about? When you're talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit and acknowledging your sins to God and connecting the two does not compute. If you don't understand those things, you don't know anything about spirituality. They don't understand that every believer is what? Either carnal or spiritual. You are and I am right now. We're in one. That's the only two choices. There is no in-between. Where do you go to find that? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Write it down. Y'all aren't remember it, so write it down. It's the third time I ask y'all, and y'all haven't got it yet. Maybe some of you have it, and you're just so humble, you don't want to show off. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, what? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 1. Verse 1, 2, and 3. Just start reading right there. Paul is ripping them to shreds. You bunch of babies. I fed you milk and you couldn't hardly take that. You should be, you should be eating straw meat now and you can't even take it yet. Boy, he is letting them have it. But there you have the two statuses that every believer is in. You're either carnal influenced by your old sin nature, or you are spiritual because you're filled with the Holy, Spi uh, Holy Spirit. And we all know that when you are carnal, when you've sinned, you are no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. You're under the influence of your old sin nature. You can act just like an unbeliever. And the sooner you get back into spirituality, the better. And you do that by doing what? You know, we say rebound is confession of sin. So, A, carnal believers grieve. Ephesians 4.30 is where that is. He says, stop grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, when they sin. Spiritual believers acknowledge their sins, 1 John 1, 1.9, to regain the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's how we execute the Christian way of life. That's how we can obey, obey the commands that are so grievous to us that we are to love our neighbor when we want to choke him or her. We can't do that in our own power. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, He gives us what we need in order to fulfill that command. See, those who are not aware of this spiritual process believe fluctuating between spirituality and carnality, believe that one's behavior at any given time determines where they will spend eternity. When they are in carnality, they believe, uh-oh, I really wasn't saved, I'm going to hell. And all they are is in carnality. They just need to acknowledge that sin, bam, they're back spirituality, they're on track. But because they don't know these things, they're afraid that they weren't really saved at all or maybe they've lost their salvation. I've talked to people before who actually went into the psych wards in hospitals because they were afraid they were going to hell because these charlatan preachers told them that if you get a divorce, you're going to hell. If you do this or that, the other thing, you're going to hell. Well, I guess if I was afraid I was going to hell, I might check into the psych ward too. I don't want to go there. And I, but you know what? I never think about it, do you? Never registers on my radar screen about going to hell. Doesn't have anything to do with whether I'm worthy or not. It's just that I believe the Bible. I believed in Christ. Boom. I've been born again. I've been regenerated. I have eternal life. I have God's own righteousness. And I'm an ambassador. I'm a priest. 
I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. I have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you want to talk about any of these things, I'd be glad to sit down and talk to you about them. And you ought to be able to do the same to anybody. Number six, they all fail to see that believers are kept by the power of God, not by their own power. 1 Peter 1, 5, for we are kept by the power of God. We don't stay out of hell because we can maintain anything. We stay out of hell because God's word is true. He said, you believe in Christ, it's a done deal, and he keeps us in that secure position. Seven, they understand the potential. Oh, excuse me, they Oh, underestimate, thank you. I guess I better put these on. I've been trying without them. Ah, they underestimate the potential of the old sin nature in the lives of believers. You know, the old sin nature doesn't leave after you're a believer, and it can be very potent. But you are not a slave to it. You can choose not to sin. Sometimes you're going to because we're weak creatures, but you're not a slave to it. But it is a strong Lure. Number eight, they fail to make proper distinctions between positional and experiential aspects of the spiritual life. And I'll save the last one, the best for last. <clears throat> Every time you look at a scripture of the Bible, what you need to be thinking, is that positional? Is that dealing with what happened at salvation? Is that dealing with the gospel? Or is this dealing with an experiential sanctification. Is this talking about what should be happening after salvation or at salvation? Every scripture needs to be rightly divided to be able to determine that. And you should be able to do it. Uh, let's see. I think I'm going to skip through a lot of this. Let's just get down here to where I was. Well, here's the... I, I think I'll start this paragraph here. The way many try to determine if one's faith is real, that means saving, is to link it with obedience. They say that if a person's faith is true, they will be obedient. Here's a quote. Faith is not complete unless it is obedient. The real believer will obey. A concept of faith that excludes obedience corrupts the message of salvation. Clearly, the biblical concept of faith is inseparable from obedience. Obedience is the inevitable manifestation of of true faith. And I'm sorry, I have to relegate that to blather. It simply is not so. This is where we're doing new ground here now. Lesson 28, today's 17th. Some say that one may claim that he is a believer but is not truly saved if he doesn't meet the behavioral standard, standards required to be a true believer, if he doesn't persevere or endure. Where may one find these required uh, standards? Isn't that a good question? Because that's what they're doing. They're looking at your behavior. Did you have a beer? Oh, you, you, you imbibe? Oh, well. <laughs> that must go on the list. They've got the whole list there. And <clears throat> so they've got their list. That's, they're making up a standard. But that's their standard. It didn't come from God. It's a made-up standard. So these required standards, that's what we're talking about. They may be in the mind of some misguided, confused soul, but they certainly are not found in the Bible. Of course, this is not to say that there are no standards given in the Bible for believers. There are. Listen to this, though. However, they apply to post-salvational living after you're saved, never in order to be saved. So the Bible gives standards, but they are post-salvation for post-salvational living, living, not to the acquisition of salvation itself, which is acquired by what? Faith alone and Christ alone. Now these confused people allege that the reason these made-up behavioral standards are not met by those professing to be Christians is because they had a head belief and not a heart belief. So you just thought that you believed, but it came from your head. Sometimes they say it is a mental ascent. Woo, we're getting into some fine language now. All that is is blather. You know what a mental ascent is? It's a thought. What is believing? It's a thought. So if anybody wants to accuse you of, oh, all you had was a mental ascent. ascent. Yeah, that's right. I thought about it, and I believed it. That's all thinking, and that's what it was. 
so they, they try to put, they try to look at the faith. It's never on the faith. It's always the object of faith. Of course, such a distinction is, is, uh, it, no such distinction is made in, better put these on, on the, in the Bible. Neither are there behavioral standards a person must adhere to in order to prove that he or she is truly saved. Now, don't go off down the wrong direction here. All right, I can let the good times roll now. I don't have to behave myself to prove that I'm a Christian or even to stay saved. Well, just have at it. As we used to say, knock your lights out. Have all the fun you can for a season. But what comes around, what goes around comes around. And that divine woodshed is not a fun place. Linking obedience to faith regarding salvation. Linking obedience to faith regarding salvation makes obedience, that is, good works, the issue for validating one's eternal salvation and makes them, that is, the good works, instrumental in securing eternal life. Do you understand that? If someone's going to validate your salvation by your work, then by doing that, they are inserting works into the acquisition of salvation. And there's no way to, un to get around it. How can true faith always issue forth perseverance in works and yet allow for periods of carnality? How could anyone know for sure that he is saved at any point, given point of time? When one is carnal, he is not persevering, which they have made the criteria for authenticating true faith. You see what I'm saying? You know when you're, you know when you're in uh, carnality, don't you? Your blood pressure goes up. The veins in your neck start popping out. Your face turns red. You're gritting your teeth. Hey, come on. Wake up. You're in carnality. So we all get into carnality. So if that is the... If you have to persevere in your carnality, how do you know that you're still going to heaven if the validity of your salvation depends on you persevering? Because you're not persevering. So if you're in carnality and you buy into that idea that it is your works that shows that you persevere, that you're truly saved, then you've got heap big problems because you're not persevering. And how long can you go? Or what, what all can you do and still be considered persevering? Are y'all connecting these dots? Can you ask these questions to somebody who says, oh, well, yes, you have to be good. Well, how good? That's all you've got to do. How good do I have to be? Well... You can't sin too much. How much is too much? Is there a number? God, I kind of push the line. Can I, can, I, can I commit 12 sins a day? Well, maybe 11. Okay, 11. What kind of sin? See, I mean, it gets into ridiculous, doesn't it? You can do that to them if you will just do it. Anytime someone says, oh, yes, well, you've got to have so-and-so, so-and-so. Really? How much? How many? What kind? Can you answer those questions? Ask those questions? And watch them. They'll be doing the soft shoe trying to get out of there. And, you know, we're not trying to put heat on anyway just to see them squirm. But the heat goes on them because it should be on them because they believe the lie. They've inserted works into salvation. Of course, there are many who profess to be Christians who are not. However, the reason they are not Christians is because of what they believe. That is a false gospel, not because of how they act, whether their behavior is good or bad. See, a lot of people think, well, if a person is really good, he's probably going to heaven. Isn't that what most people think? They look at people's behavior, oh, surely they're going to heaven. Immoral conduct is no more a guarantee that one is unsaved than moral conduct is a guarantee that one is saved. Now listen to this. makes everybody mad. Not y'all, but uh, others. Hell is going to be full of moral people who rejected the gospel. Some of the nicest, most moral people you ever will meet are going to hell. Why? Because they're trusting in their own works. They're not trusting in Christ's work. Are you bold enough to say that to somebody? Huh? It's 
Well, I shouldn't say it's fun, but it was for me. I mean, we're not, you're not trying to play king of the spiritual mountain. You're not superior to anyone. But listen, it's great when you have the truth and you know you have the truth. And the people who have lies, they're the ones strutting about like peacock. Well, look what all I've done. Yes, yeah. And they strut about and they are lost as they can possibly be. They have this mountain of good that they're depending on. And when you shed the light on that mound and call it what it is, which Paul said, let's just say it stinketh, um, they don't like it. But they have no recourse when you ask the right questions. There are some well-known Bible teachers who still insist on connecting true faith with obedience. Here's a quote. Is it enough to know and understand and assent to the facts of the gospel, even holding the inward conviction that these truths apply to me personally and yet never shun sin or submit to the Lord Jesus? He's saying, is that possible? Is a person who holds that kind of belief guaranteed eternal life? I would say, yes. How about you? Huh? Does such a hope constitute faith in the sense in which scriptures use the term? Now look where he goes. James expressly teaches that it does not. Where did we just come from? James. What is James talking about? Is he talking about what happens after salvation or what is needed to acquire salvation? It's always after, isn't it? Experiential. James expressly teaches it does not. Real faith, he says will produce righteous behavior. And that's true if you're talking about faith in the Word after salvation. That's what See, James was connecting faith and works after salvation in the experiential sense. But he's put a salvific sense to it. And the true character of saving faith may be examined in the light of believers' works. Okay, here's something. But if good works, that would be, here's another quote, by the way. But if good works, activities of serving God and others, do not follow from our profession of faith, we are as yet believing only from the head, not from the heart. In other words, justifying faith is not yet ours, the truth is that though we are justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. You ever heard that before? Huh? It produces fruit. Now, these, this is J.I. Packer. He's a well-known theologian. And he's got it wrong. You understand that? All you need is just one simple verse. Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That would include obedience to the law. You got, is that hard to understand? Faith and works are on the extreme ends. They're, they're, they're essentially mutually exclusive. Listen to this. Whatever saving faith is, it certainly does not include in its scope the very thing that, it, that it's opposite, which is works of obedience. In other words, you have faith here and you have works here. And they are opposites. So whatever faith is, it can't hardly include in it its opposite, can it? It's either faith or it's works, but it's never faith plus works with regards to eternal salvation. Faith is the opposite of works, of obedience, of be obedience to the law, and only the most twisted, distorted logic would claim that while faith is apart from works of obedience, it also includes works of obedience. It can't be both. Remember the, the cliche that we spent some time on? We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And I finally got it right the first time. Romans 3.28 pertains to eternal salvation, being justified before God, 
what applies, what applies to it does not apply to post-salvation experience of being justified by man by our works. You got that? You got to separate them. Faith and works, then, are related to each other. That means after salvation. That's what James chapter 2 is all about. So we're not saying that works has no place in the Christian life. Quite the contrary. We're just saying uh, uh, works has... Did I say faith works? Works, okay. Works has nothing to do with acquiring eternal salvation. Nothing, zero, zilch. Afterwards, then it has everything to do with it. And people are not making that distinction. And you have to do it for them. They don't know about it. So when they start talking about works, you have to do this or you have to do that, what are you going to do? You're going to start firing questions. You're going to make 20 questions look lame. What you're going to do with these people with questions. So they can see that what they're, they're adhering to, what they're embracing is absolutely ridiculous. It is imperative to remember that there are two types of justification. Remember that? You've got to understand this. We are justified positionally before God by what? Our faith alone. And justified experientially before man by works. It's not until after one is justified before God by faith that works enter the picture. Now, I had a, a question last time about uh, repentance. And we're going to start getting our big toe in the repentance pool now. Are you all ready? Some claim that Faith in Christ is not enough. One must also repent of his sins to be saved. Is that true? Must one repent, confess, confess of his or her sins to be saved? Some believe so. Are you ready for this quote? This is one of the most... This is a... a, a I just can't believe... I just gave you the, the quote. It's by Michael P. Andrus, and he said the following. The issue here is that when one turns to something, he must at the same time, turn from something else. The New Testament term for this turning away is repentance. It means not just remorse. Well, it doesn't ever mean remorse if it's metanoeo, but anyway, he says it just doesn't mean remorse, but a turning around so that one goes in an entirely different direction. Since we cannot read other people's hearts and discern their true status, saved or lost, before God, we need to help them measure themselves by God's standards to see if they are in the faith. And when he's saying in the faith, he's talking about are they truly saved. I suggest that six months of turning from sin and fruit-bearing for Christ may be appropriate evidence of genuineness. <laughs> Can't believe it. Do you know there are some churches, if you go to join that church, okay. You want to join aren't you? Fine. Let's see, what's the date? Okay. We're going to watch you for six months. And if you don't slip in slip months, six months, we probably will determine that you really had a heart belief and not a head belief. That you are truly saved. I can't imagine anybody wanting to join a church like that. <laughs> and don't die during that six months. Can you believe that? Mm. I see I have 500 years of theological journals on my computer. And I, and I read these things and I think, these are the educated ones? There are others leading evangelists who insist that repentance of sins is necessary for salvation. Here's one. This is by Mark Deaver. I better put my specs on her. We must respond to God's good news by repenting of our sins and believing the gospel if we, would be, if we would be forgiven by God, reconciled to Him, and saved from the wrath to come. And when sharing the gospel, it is important to make sure people know they must persevere in a lifestyle of repentance. Okay. Somebody just told you that. What's the first thing you're going to ask them? Somebody tell me. 
Okay, that's pretty good. Oh, really? <laughs> Where'd you get that idea? Well, how about a hand? Yeah, listen to this line. It's important to make sure that people know that they must persevere in a lifestyle of repentance. My first question is, how long? Just two words. How long? Can they answer that? Where can they find the answer to that? Where can anybody find the answer to that? You can't find the answer to that in the Bible because it's not there. Because it's a ridiculous question when you try to anchor it to salvation. I mean... When you ask somebody who makes a statement like that, well, how long? I just try to keep from laughing. I'm just sitting there, okay, give it your best shot. I'm, I'm, I want to hear it. It's not funny, really. It's sad. But this is what you must do to help them see that they have embraced a satanic line that will lead them straight into hell. That's what it amounts to. If you talk to them, if you try to tell them all you know, they will tune out in a heartbeat and you'll get nowhere. But if you ask them how long, you've asked them a question that they can't find the answer to. And if he said you have to do it, and he can't tell you how long you have to do it, he is full of bull. I need to be more distinguished. Sometimes I have to... Decide whether I really want to communicate or be distinguished. (laughs) Usually I go for the former. Uh, It is true that repentance, that is metanoeo, uh, is a change of mind that takes place when one accepts the gospel. But here's the big important thing. It is changing one's mind about Christ, not about sin, you see. When people say you have to repent, what they mean is you have to feel sorry for your sins. You've got to make sins the issue. You have to renounce your sins. You have to do all that. It's not about sins. It's about Christ. All you have to do is change your mind about Christ. Before, I used to believe that I had to save myself. I had to be good enough. I had to be baptized. I had to do these things. And now I feel pretty secure because I've done what's necessary. And then somebody comes along and says, yeah, but you're still sinning. And those sins could be undone. Could, could, you know, maybe you weren't really saved. Oh, yeah. Well, did Christ take care of those sins or not? Every time somebody mentions sins, that's another good question. Is it not? A believer may strive to resist temptation and avoid sin, but all believers continue to sin after they're born again. When we sin because we sin because we like to sin. Anybody want to argue with me about that? It is our nature to sin. Our sins may become more odious to us and we may strive harder to resist. But the point is, when we don't change our minds about sin, if we we don't change our minds about sin, if we did, we would no longer sin. In other words, what I'm saying is, it's our nature to sin. We like to sin. And for someone to say that they were going to renounce their sins, it's phony baloney. Because if you change your mind about sin, if you could do that, you wouldn't sin anymore. Now, you can say it. You can, you can, you can even get a paper and get it uh, notarized and say, I've changed my mind about sin. I want it filed in the courthouse. How, how much good is that going to do? Huh? You're already sinning because you're a pompous ass thinking that you can't sin. Distinguished. Uh, you see this where our sins may become more odious oh oh, and I've got my deals on I like odious let's see let me look at it again obvious okay but I don't want to talk about obvious I want to talk about odious I call it I I, I read that odious because odious was on my mind I remember the first time I heard odious I was in elementary school. Elementary school. And a girl said that I was odious. <laughs> elementary school. Can you imagine that? And I didn't know whether to thank her or get angry. <laughs> I've always remembered it. One of my favorite words. When I learned what it was, I went everywhere around. Every time somebody would say something, oh, you're just odious. <laughs> well, I got that done anyway. Many would agree that the New Testament book that describes that is 
that is most descriptive in telling unbelievers how to be saved is the Gospel of John. Would you agree with that? I mean, if you were going to have an unbeliever and you're going to give him the Bible and you said, what book would you read? You would say John, right? And, but probably John 3 is where you might want to start. However, you know, this gospel does not use the words repent or repentant even a single time in the whole book. So if repentance is necessary for salvation, we go to the go-to book in the Bible for evangelism. It doesn't even mention repentance or repent. It tells us something, doesn't it? Essentially, when I said what we do repent when we believe the gospel. All it does, it means, the, there's two Greek words. The Greek word to change your mind is metanoeo. And that's all it means. It just means to change your mind. There's another Greek word that is used that they also translate repent in your English Bibles. And that's metamelomai. And that means regret. And people have merged the two into thinking that repentance is feeling sorry for something. It's not so. <clears throat> okay, I'm just going to give you one last shot at something to look at it, what we're going to go over next time. Are you, are you feeling good about the uh, repentance thing? You don't have to repent your sins? Which one? Metamelomai, M-E-T... M-E-T-A-M-E-L-O-M-A-I. <laughs> M-E-T-A-M-E-L-O-M-A-I. I can spell Greek, but I can't spell English huh? in English. Okay, are you all ready? Are you ready for your challenge? huh? You think that you're on, on board. You, you, you pretty feel, feel pretty solid about what we've been learning. Is that right? Are you ready for our challenge? Huh? We're talking about you don't have to repent of your sins. You got all this down, and then somebody comes and says, Okay, what about this? Oh, yeah, what about Acts 2.38? Look at this. And Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hmm? Can you handle that one? Some of you are going like this, but I think y'all not be. I think you're going like this. It's not an easy verse, especially if you're just reading it in the English. Peter had just given them the gospel. The verse prior to this says that they were pricked in their heart because he just informed them, "Hey, you just murdered your Messiah," and they were feeling pretty poorly. And they so uh, they had asked him, "What must we do to be saved?" And Peter said to them, "Repent." And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what I was afraid of. That's what y'all be like when somebody <laughs> throws that at you, huh? And we just finished studying about, about uh, repentance and no works. Isn't salvation a work? Isn't that something that people in various denominations and religions say you must be baptized with water to be saved? And didn't that say in order to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have to repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Hmm. Well, next week. I mean, uh, next time, Thursday, 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 yeah. Just hope that you don't run into somebody between that Thursday that quotes Acts 2.38 to you. There is an explanation, but this is one of the harder verses, but there is a very clear explanation. But you never get it by just reading your Bibles. You have to really go to the original languages, and it explains it very clearly then all you have to do is remember it. You don't have to know any of the uh, Greek grammar or syntax or anything. All you have to know is one... See, I'm giving you a few keys that are absolutely imperative to know that you won't be afraid 
when someone comes up and starts uh, making some kind of cockamamie idea about how to be saved, you don't, you don't argue with them. You just start asking them questions. You know, when you ask the question, the heat is on them. It's not on you. And that's where the heat needs to be. And they will stay engaged, and they will maybe see for the first time. They need to rethink this, this uh, sand that they built their eternal hope on. Okay, uh, I think we'll end here, and next time we'll just get right into it with Acts 2.38. And in the meantime, you can try to figure it out for yourself. I hope you can. Maybe you can. <laughs> you notice that, huh? <laughs> well, uh, I think even if I had it up there, I don't know if you figured it out or not, but I want you to see if you can do it in the English, okay? See, you need to be thinking about these things. That's why we nourish our souls every time that we get into the Word, especially corporately as a body here. We are nourishing our souls. We are preparing ourselves so that we can be the faithful servant that God has called us to be. And we can only do that in knowledge. Not only that we understand it, but we understand it well enough to articulate it to other people with questions and help them find the answers and let go of the lies. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to focus on your mighty word. We're so thankful that everything has to do with grace with when we are connected with you. There's nothing that we have to do in order to receive the most wonderful, fantastic gift of all, which is eternal life by simply accepting the gift of eternal life from our Lord Jesus Christ simply through faith by believing him for it. Now we pray that you will help us to meditate upon these things and that we won't shrink back into the shadows when we're challenged but that we will be ready to stand firm and show them what a mighty god we have we pray this in christ's name amen